Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Mav Viola. I thought that I was a boy and uh, that I was also supposed to be African-American. I don't know where that one came from. <laughs> now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the Bahama Soul Club behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Flexible. Three stories of people who did not break because they knew how to bend. Our first two stories were recorded at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the remarkable Mav Viola, who you can find on Twitter at Mav Viola. But before that, we're going to hear from Jonathan Bradley Welch, who has a podcast that he does with David Crabb called A Special Presentation. You should check him out also on Twitter at Jonathan B. Welch. Here he is now with a story we call Meet Your Local Representative. This New Year's Eve, I was at a very good friend of mine's uh, party. He was hosting a party. And it was like a little gathering, and he came over, and he was just like, hey, Jonathan, what are your resolutions this year? And I am not a resolution person, but it just came out of me without even any physical control. I, in like my most Elaine stretch, I was like, be scarce! <laughs> he was just like, what is that? Why, huh? And I think that the reason why I said that is because the past two years and three, four months now have been a little tense for me. I'm the type of person who really cares a lot about politics. I've made that a really big part of my life. And, uh, and pop culture and all of those things. And whenever I was on social media, and I was on social media a lot, I would take careful measures to curate every single post. So I was like fact-checking articles and thinking for like 20 minutes about the two sentences or three sentences that I would write that would be profound like in that moment and I could post that online. I was like the Washington Post of my own fucking Facebook, you know? <laughs> Making sure everything was okay. And I would post it and then like my friend's mom from my hometown would call me a socialist cuck and then it's like, why? <laughs> Why am I doing any of this? So I made the decision to get off of 
most forms of social media. Um, I've kept a couple, but I really don't spend that much time on there anymore. I try to spend more time with friends in real life, doing real things, looking out of windows, reading books, <laughs> talking to people with my mouth. But it wasn't always that way for me. In fact, there was a time in my life when online communication was very important to me because when I was younger, like 19 or 20, I was a closeted kid and I was commuting to college. I lived in Massachusetts, that's where I'm from. And when, yeah, exactly, but for those of you who are like, woo, some of you think Massachusetts, it conjures up images of like the Kennedys and sailing and... <laughs> like a beautiful fall day with a lovely scarf tied around your neck. But the reality is that my Massachusetts was more like an episode of Ozark with worse accents and like, why are there all these Dunkin' Donuts locations around? This town doesn't need eight of them. So... It, and it was pretty bad. Like, I have a sister who her default response to any kind of conflict, like her, her conflict resolution tactic is just bar fight, and it's usually over the Bruins. So, like, she's had many black eyes. She's, like, come home with bloody noses, and it's like, what happened to you? She's like, Bruins fucking lost. Not a good environment for a gay kid to actually like come out. And not only am I gay, but I'm also into bears. So like, if I came out to like my old aunt and said, I'm gay, she was like, well, gay boys are so pretty. And it's like, but after sex, I like to have like hair in my teeth. And she'd be like, ugh. <laughs> Which are conversations that one has with one's aunt. So, so for me, the solution was to go online. The solution was to sit behind my computer screen and go onto websites. Back in those days, I'm a little long in the tooth, so this was when we didn't have, like, Scruff or... Scru Scruff's the only app I use. I'm over 200 pounds. I don't know, like, <laughs> what other people use. Um, but we didn't have those geotagged locations. We didn't have the ability to find somebody near you to hook up with or to talk to. And for my purposes at that point in my life, that was probably for the best because I wasn't able to actually be who I was. And so if I was going to talk to somebody and certainly someone who was, you know, in my type or, or my wheelhouse, like, I probably would never meet up with that person. So if these people were uh, in other countries or halfway across this one that we're in, that was totally fine. And I would have these conversations behind the compact presario with a bottle of Dove lotion because I love the skin I'm in. And, like, and that was kind of how I saw the dating pool going for me. I didn't really know what the options were for my real life. So I was chatting with a bunch of guys and I would get off and have these conversations that were very transactional. But one guy in particular piqued my interest. And I looked at him and physically to look at this guy, he was like the epitome of my type at the time. So 19 or 20 years old, I was thinking like, if I see a guy and I know when I look at him that he's gonna age into an ex-baseball coach, then that's the guy for me. <laughs> and he checked off that box. 
He was somewhere in the middle of the country, so perfect, we're never gonna meet each other. And we started jerking off together on Yahoo Messenger, because back in those days, you didn't have messaging inside the app. I'm sorry, guys, if there are any grandmothers here, I'm so sorry for this conversation. But, uh, but we would, you know, go to town. But, <laughs> but what was great about him is that some of the conversations we'd have started to have a little bit of depth. He didn't just like me, this pale, skinny kid who was on a bare message board somewhere on Manhunt, which if you don't know what Manhunt is, it's what you think it is. <laughs> but he could see something beyond just that. We both were into politics. We both uh, weren't out. I was able to gather that. So it really kind of felt like um, here was a brother I could jerk off with, but that's <laughs> weird. Uh, <laughs> We had such good conversations. This was when Bush was president, and we thought that was pretty bad at the time. <laughs> and so we were able to kind of touch on things going on in the news, and then, you know, like, I would, like, squirt on my screen, things like that. And it, that was going very well. So every, you know, every, every few weeks, we would chat on Yahoo Messenger, we would send dick pics, we would do the things kids do when they're in love. <laughs> And, but I knew there was a difference here. I knew that this wasn't really love. This was a good friendship. This is somebody who's just like me. And our conversations would go on for years. We started chatting when I was about 19 or 20 years old, and we continued to chat like that, semi-periodically, over and over again. He followed me on MySpace, great we actually saw glimpses into each other's lives. And over the course of that time, things started to change in my life. I moved to college, and I lived in a college town. And I got out there, I had more friends, I was able to meet more people, and I was able to come out. And in coming out, like, if you haven't come out in your life, it's actually like a really big it can be, I mean, it can be terrible, but it can also be a really big party. It feels very empowering, and every time you tell somebody, it's like, I have this really exciting news, I like dicks exclusively. And, <laughs> and they're like, that's amazing, yes! And then when you do, it's like, yes! Um, the, coincidentally, quick side note, the friend's mom who called me a socialist cuck was supportive 10 years ago. Uh, and when my friend said, oh, John Welch is gay, she was like, yes! <laughs> so good things come from coming out. And my life did change, but I would still keep up with some of these people. And this guy that I had talked to for five years now, I would keep up with him. This was coinciding with the 2008 presidential election. And because I was newly out, and because that was really important, and I felt this empowerment, I volunteered for Hillary Clinton's campaign. And I wanted, I was just so excited, a woman could be president, I wanted to sew her rainbow pantsuits, but <laughs> instead I just walked door to door in New Hampshire. And that work was very important to me because I felt like we could really change the world. I felt like that was a campaign that wasn't only going to be historic, but it was going to really mean something, and we were going to kind of course correct and, and do the right thing. So it came up. 
in conversation. And he and I were chatting, and he said, so are you, what, do you have a horse in this race? Which is what political people say, and it's terrible. But do you, do you care who's going to win? And I said, well, I'm volunteering for Hillary. And he was like, that's really great, cool, cool, cool. I'm volunteering as well. And I was like, well, who are you volunteering for? And he was like, the Mike Huckabee campaign. <laughs> and we know Mike Huckabee, guys. We definitely know his daughter now. And we know that they're probably not too keen on the gays. I was filled instantly with a white hot rage, which also, like, if you're gonna talk about a color of rage for Mike Huckabee, that's the only appropriate one. <laughs> it's the only one he'll allow. <laughs> it was so, it just made me angry, and I, I sort of exploded a little bit at him. And I said, like, you know, this, how could you volunteer for this guy? For Mike Huckabee, are you fucking kidding me? This guy who, who doesn't want people like us to exist, he doesn't want us, he wants us to go through conversion therapy. This is so terrible. How dare you do this? Don't, I wanna live a life where I have a partner, where I have somebody I love, and I can live that life with that person until we are very old and not have to worry about being threatened day to day. Don't you want that for you and someone else? And he said, well, I am in a relationship. And I was like, well, that's news to me. I mean, fine, because we would probably never meet each other. But I had no idea you were in a relationship. And he said, yeah, and she and I have been together for years. And I was like, well, that's okay. She, huh, <laughs> that was just a very strange feeling. I went from anger to kind of just a, a sense of disbelief. And he sent me a picture of her, which is a weird move to make. <laughs> like, we're having this conversation. I think you know what I'm all about. I certainly thought I knew what you were all about. And now you're sending me a picture of yourself and your girlfriend at an apple orchard. And she looks perfectly nice. She looks like any prom date I've had. They were together. But again, my life had changed. And at that point, I didn't really need to have that conversation with him anymore. I wasn't sitting in my parents' basement behind a computer screen. I was sitting on a laptop in my apartment that I shared with friends by an open window. The bottle of lube was under the bed because I had that freedom and no one would find it. And I closed the laptop and I did not talk to him again. And I think the MySpace thing continued and I just kind of forgot about him. And life went on. I moved to New York City, I moved to LA. I've had so many relationships with different people because you chat with some of those and then you chat with others and then you swipe right and you meet these people and then you just kind of forget about, about those that you knew in your past. And, and, and a note on scarcity. When you decide to be scarce, when you decide that you're not going to fill your life with social media, you do start to get more creative. You do start to think about things that you didn't think about before. And people pop into your head. And so, not too long ago, he popped into my head. And I was like, oh God, 
that's right, that guy. I wonder what he's doing. And I got rid of Facebook, so I can't like go Facebook stalk him. But I did keep Twitter, which arguably is the worst one. Like, why did I keep that one? <laughs> so I went onto Twitter and I looked him up. He has kind of a common name. And the first person who came up was, was him. And I was like, oh wow, this, this is him. The years have not been kind. <laughs> there have only been 10 of them. And I think they went to balding, you know, the, he has like a widow's peak and it's whatever. I mean, it's fine. We all have our journeys and nobody's perfect. And there are a lot of things that have happened to my body in 10 years. <laughs> But there he was, he was staring me back and he had his banner photo and the banner photo was him and that girl from the apple orchard, only now they're married and have four children. And I looked at the bio and he's a state legislator. And he's the chair of his county's GOP. So, <laughs> the Julia Sugar Baker part of me really wanted to say, like, I remember you. <laughs> do you remember me? Bet you do. But on Twitter, I, I don't know, like, where to do that among the Mike Pence, like, praise, or, like, posing with, like, his home state senator in the middle of the country, it's red. It, it was just the whole package, you know? It's the tweets. It's the tweets about the election. It's the tweets about trying to gut Planned Parenthood and cut Medicare expansion and all of the things that they want to do. And, the, and knowing what he gets off to, and seeing the wife, and seeing the kids, and wondering in my head if on election night 2016, when I was crying to my boyfriend and wondering if we could stay in this country anymore, was he fucking with their MAGA hats on and thinking of my dick? Or someone else's? I don't know. So I'm taking a look at that, at that Twitter account, and I'm just waiting for the moment to comment something like, hmm, interesting take. <laughs> and I'm sure he'll remember my face. And I'm sure that he remembers my face and he saw the notification that I followed him. And I'm not doing anything, and I'm not going to out him, because that's not me. My life is very different. I have had open relationships with people. I have had solid relationships with people. I can love whoever I want. I know who the fuck I am. And all I want to do is tell this guy that maybe he should take a fucking seat, not in a governmental body. <laughs> and it brings me like so much joy and satisfaction to know that somewhere in the middle of this country, a closeted Republican is sweating, waiting for me. Thank you, guys. Another gay Republican sex scandal. It's unbelievable. We've seen it a million times. It's unbelievable. 
He's as anti-gay as you get. He couldn't vote more anti-gay than he already has. Some people were surprised to learn that he was sending unsolicited dick pics to a man on the Grinder app. But I'm sure they were just going to play Scrabble, so I don't know why everybody's making a big deal out of it. He's a three-term senator. A conservative Baptist minister. He is also known as a fierce opponent of gay marriage. The texting scandal first spread on social media. Ultra-conservative, anti-LGBT Republican. A Republican from Southern California with a history of opposing gay rights was actually seen at a gay nightclub before he was arrested. He abused his power, threatening to deport his ex-lover, who just so happens to be a Mexican man. Just so you guys know, I've not always been this cool. Um... (laughs) Yes, I have a lot of denim on, and uh, very clearly androgynous and gay, and I have hand tattoos, which lead to arm tattoos, which lead to neck tattoos, and I'm a fucking badass, and we can see that loud and clear, right? Thank you. Okay, but I've not always looked like that. Underneath all of this is just a basic-ass white bitch who looks like Gwyneth Paltrow, okay? That's just the facts. Those are the facts. But when I was a kid, I looked totally different than this. I was just like this toe-headed, long hair, little beauty pageant babe. You know, just sun-kissed, freckles. I lived in the suburbs. I swam in swimming pools at the country club. You know, that's, I literally looked like Jean Benet Ramsey, essentially, when I was a child growing up. <laughs> but... That's not how I saw myself. That's how everybody else saw me. My mom, my friends, my dad, everybody saw me as this precious, you know, little girl. I was lanky. I mean, I literally was just like this perfect little blonde baby. Um, Except for one thing. I thought that I was a boy and uh, that I was also supposed to be African-American. I don't know where that one came from. Um... But I was full-blown convinced. Every time I looked in the mirror, I was fully convinced that I was in the wrong body, just head to toe. And I would cry all the time about it. And I would say, my name is Matthew, and I am a little black boy. I am, this is not who I am. I don't know if I fell through a black hole from another life, but uh, nobody took it seriously. Not my mom, not my dad. Nobody in my life believed me. They just laughed it off. And so much so that to this day, Nobody remembers that. <laughs> like, it's as if I just made it up. My mom literally has pictures up in her house of me, and she does not have a single picture of me past the age of 16, because that was the last time that I looked the most like Gwyneth Paltrow. So that's the child that she loves and is fond over, and she can't even bring herself to admit that this is who her daughter is and has become and looks like and feels the most comfortable in. My parents, they separated when I was a teenager. Um, And so I had two different households. I lived part of the time with my dad and I lived part of the time with my mom. At my dad's house, he was kind of a dad in the 80s where he, you know, got up early, went to work, worked really hard, came home, drank a beer, played catch with us in the backyard, wrestled, you know, ate dinner, went to bed. He was great. So I was really comfortable over at his house. He didn't care what I wore. He didn't care that I wanted to wear his jeans and his shirts and his Birkenstocks. And I would wear my hair in like a low pony with a scrunchie. You know how like the tomboys did when we were like in middle school? Like just a loose little low pone. (laughs) 
he didn't even notice. He had no idea that that meant anything. You know, he was just like, oh, yeah, you look great. Bye, going to work, you know. Just... <laughs> but then I would go to my mom's house, and at my mom's house, she was a totally different story. This woman is terrifying, okay? This woman is... Uh, Four, about four nine. She's terrifying, terrifying woman. Uh, she's like Republican, conservative, Catholic, raised by nuns. You know that kind of a woman. Really funny. Love her. She's hyster. The woman is hysterical. I definitely got my sense of humor from her. But at her house, everything had to be very feminine. So much so that like she would buy my clothes. She wouldn't let me wear anything that I wanted to wear up until the age of about fourteen, fifteen. Like she dressed me. She would say to me, "It's not pink. It's coral." Or salmon, you know? She was just trying to convince me that things weren't pink, which is a color I despised. She did things like she covered my walls in my bedroom with porcelain dolls. Do you guys know these porcelain dolls? Oh, I saw some cringes, yeah. These porcelain where their eye gets stuck like that, you know? (laughs) You have to put them on a little stand. You can't even play with them. They're so fancy, you know? My mom would keep the box. That's how fancy they were. My my closet was just top to bottom adorned with these Madame Alexander boxes. They're going to be worth something someday, you know? They're not worth shit. So... (laughs) This was like her little army, you know, that she like deployed to my bedroom to like keep an eye on me and keep guard and make sure I didn't step out of line, you know? And I, they terrified me just like she did. And every night I would go to bed just staring at them like, okay, I'm good, this is my baby doll and I'm in a, I'm in a gown and we're good, right, ladies? And they're all staring at me with a fucking blinky eye. <laughs> She was a nightmare, and she was my enemy, and every morning we fought, to, we fought tooth and nail every morning about what I was going to wear, and it would lead to her literally getting on top of me, pinning my arms down so that she could get tights on my fucking long, twiggy legs, and it, was just, it went down like that every single day. It was a battle to the death every day. And every time we went to the grocery store or anywhere and somebody would ask, oh, is this your daughter? She would look down at me and say, well, yes, it is. She gets her height from me. Like it was just some funny fucking joke that she would tell over and over. You know, and then she'd say, look at her. Look at her legs. Look at her eyebrows. Look at her, you know, look at her long blonde hair. Everything that she wanted to be, I basically was. I was tall and skinny. And she would say, you could be a model when you grow up. What are you doing? You could be a model. But I didn't want to be a model. I wanted to be a writer on a farm in Charlottesville with horses like every other little girl in this country. You know? I wanted to be a sprinter like Jackie Joyner Kersey. My mom didn't know who Jackie Joyner Kersey was. I had her pictures up on my wall next to Daryl Strawberry. Come on. <laughs> Never mind that I was president of the SCA and got everybody's friend senior superlative, you know? Never mind all of that, that I was a teacher's pet and the class clown and on top of everything and friends with all the underdogs. Never mind all that. I'm so beautiful, aren't I? That's all I heard over and over and over. Look at her, look at her. So for years, I just battled. I battled in my head this gender identity. You know, I just, I didn't really know myself and I never nobody stopped and asked me who I was or paid attention to what I was saying and so eventually when you're a kid you just kind of you almost forget that you had those thoughts to begin with because nobody cares you're like well then I guess I don't care and you just keep putting them back and putting them back and stuffing them down until I left Virginia came to LA and discovered social media and then I found the hashtag transgender (laughs) F to M, trans man, trans fitness, trans guy. 
And in that time when social media first became a big thing, especially Instagram, y'all, Instagram was a big way for me to get obsessed with being transgender and what you can do to your body. Things I knew nothing about before. I hardly even knew that you could be gay. Like I didn't even hear that word until I was 18 and I saw my cousin with another man and they both had turtlenecks on and I was like, why are these two men so intimate with turtlenecks on? And my mom was like, they're gay. And I was like, what's gay? You know? Gay was just two men in turtlenecks. That's all I knew. But I became obsessed with being transgender. And what did that mean? What in the world did that mean? And I had just recently discovered that I was gay. You know, I just kind of like recently been coming into my sexuality, which is very different than gender, though not unrelated entirely. And I started just Googling this and looking at these images and obsessing to the point that my girlfriend at night would be like, what are you doing on your phone? And I'd be like, I'm just looking at dudes topless. She's like, do you have something to tell me? <laughs> like, uh, not what you think. And I realized that I thought maybe I wanted to be these men. Maybe I, wanted, maybe I was a trans guy. I don't know. You know, I just started obsessing over it. So I thought I'm going to do something about it because this is crazy. I can't be just every night just spiraling. I can't just be going to the gym all the time and thinking that I'm going to turn into the Hulk. It's not going to happen. You know, I don't have that going through my body. Women, we have other hormones going through our body. And the second they think that we're going to try and get muscles, they release all of the hormones that make us not get muscle and get fat instead. That's what being a woman is. So I was like, I'm going to go to the doctor. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go talk to somebody. So I went to a doctor. Let me tell you about this doctor, you guys. I walk into this clinic. I Googled, of course, I was always on the Google. I Googled, I'm like, who's the best, who's the most likely man in Los Angeles to just give me what I want, which is testosterone, which you just have coursing through you all the time. Give it to me, I need it. <laughs> We're gonna talk afterwards. We're gonna do shots of tea. It's gonna be great. So I go to this doctor, okay, highly recommended. He's been in the field for years. I walk in, he's got this long gray braid, you know, he just looks exactly like you would think a doctor prescribes. Like he might as well be prescribing like, you know, giving me a medical marijuana card before it became legal. You know, those guys, like the same guy, that's the same guy that prescribes testosterone. And he's just, he looks so fucking cool. He's like hippie Coachella vibe, you know, and he's just hanging out, leaning against the wall and telling me about like, you know, how he and his wife started this clinic so that trans people can have better access to good understanding medical care. And I'm like, this guy fucking gets me. This dude gets me, right? And I'm just listening to him go on and on and on. I barely say a word, but he just kind of looks me up and down and he's like, yep, here you go. Click of the pen, writes a prescription for 100 milligrams of testosterone. Yeah, which is the highest dose. I don't know if you guys understand that, but I'm looking at a few dudes here. Dude, I was talking to earlier, you're pushing 65. Uh, you, sir, you're probably pushing about 75. We got maybe a 210 over here. You're off the Richters. Like, you're out of control. <laughs> so in this squinty little basic bitch Gwyneth Paltrow body, I was going to put 100 milligrams of testosterone, right? And I thought, well, this guy's seen it all. If he thinks I'm trans, I must be trans. That must be what I am. You know, that's it. That's the thing. So I was super stoked. I took that testosterone home with me, and I just stared at it for a couple of weeks because I was a nervous fucking wreck. And I just stared at it, and every day I would look at it and be like, I'm going to fuck you up. I'm going to fuck you up. You know? <laughs> fuck you. If I was a man, I'd fuck you up right now, but I'm not a man yet, so it's going to be a minute. <laughs> 
So a couple of weeks went by, and then I decided to pull the trigger. And I took the testosterone in my bathroom, and I don't know if you guys know anything about testosterone, but the one that I had, it came in a little bottle, little glass bottle, okay? And it came with two syringes, a small one and a little bit of a bigger one. The small one you use to extract the testosterone, and then you transfer that to the other needle. Don't know why, couldn't tell you. And then you inject that needle into a place on your body. For me, it was my stomach. Uh, So I grabbed a little piece of meat on my stomach. I injected the needle, and then for a 10 count, nice and slow, I injected the testosterone into my body. It was crazy. It felt crazy. I stared in the mirror waiting for something to happen, like a chin hair to sprout, you know, or like pecs to grow. I wanted my boobs to turn into pecs like that. All that working out over the years wanted to just pay off right then. Pumping, like, you know, taking creatine and like fucking whey protein all in one day. Like, just work. I was excited. I was super excited. I thought this was it. So then I realized, okay, I got to do something about this. I got to tell my family, right? I got to like actually come out. Because at this point, it had just been like my dirty little secret. Like nobody really knew. You could kind of look at me and assess that like, oh, she's probably thought about her gender, right? I play with gender norms. I've gone on, you know, drop crotch jeans, you know? That tells you a lot about somebody. Hopefully they never go out of style, you guys. I'm getting really worried about it. I got to keep up this illusion, okay? My hip is up here. We got to keep this illusion. So I realized I had to tell somebody. So I was like, all right, I'm going to come out to my brother. My brother's always been the coolest about everything. When I was 15, he sat me down and he said, it's cool if you're gay. And I was like, what are you talking about? I believe in Jesus. I'm not gay. And he was like, okay, well, you have on cargo shorts that go past your knee? So... And then he just shrugged and was like, you tell me when. You just say when and we'll go. And I was like, sign of the cross. No, it's never happening. You know, like, I'll pray for you. He's like, I will pray for you. Um, So because I'm a comedian and I don't know how to talk about anything seriously, this is very difficult for me, just so you know. I was like, I know what I'll do. I'll send him a text with a picture of me and I'll take that uh, filter and I'll put those aviators and that mustache over my face and I'll just send that with a text that says, hey, bro, your sister's not your brother. Peace. Thought that would work. Thought that was super chill and cool way of coming out to your brother. Au contraire. He called me sobbing. I mean, I'm talking, bawling his eyes out, telling me over and over that he accepted me and he loved me, but he was so sad that he didn't get to say bye to his sister. He kept calling me babe, which was kind of odd. I said, I'm not your babe anymore. I'm your bro. Um, but it, was, it broke my fucking heart. It was really hard. It was much harder than I could have ever imagined. And a little voice popped in my head that was like, is this what I actually want to do? Is this who I am? I didn't really listen to it right away because he was manic and losing his mind. So I hung up and I realized that he wasn't going to be able to tell mom for me, um, which I had planned on asking him to do because he was a mess. So I realized I have to call and tell my mother. This woman who, her, her last saving grace is that I still identify as a woman, right? I don't think she would have ever admitted that she knew somewhere deep down I thought about not being a woman. And I clearly changed so much of myself and had hidden so much of what made me quote unquote a woman. I had to call and tell her. And I 
started just panicking. So I thought, okay, I'll rehearse it. I'll record it and I'll watch it over and I'll edit it, you know, and I'll get it right, just right, so that when I call her, it's just a script and I can just read it and then hang up on her. That was how I came out to her, just so you know. <laughs> That's how I came out to her as a lesbian. I did exactly that. I wrote a script, I called, she started saying, I'm gonna throw myself off the, and I click, I hung up. <laughs> Go ahead, jump off that balcony, four flights up, and see what happens. Nothing, you're four flights up, there's shrubs below, you're gonna be just fine. <laughs> okay, so I start rehearsing it, and I start, I press record, and I say, hi, mom. First of all, I love you. Then I just, nope, can't do it, can't do it. I press stop. I start pacing around my room, saying under my breath, like, fuck, fuck, you know? How am I going to do this? What the fuck? Press record again. Hey, Mom, it's Margaret Ann. Why am I saying my real birth name? That's not even what I go by. Ugh, God, what am I doing? She's going to read into that and think that means I'm not trans because I used my female given name at birth. Oh, this is, I'm fucked. I try one more time, and I get out the words, Hi, Mom. I love you. I just wanted to tell you I'm transgender. And as soon as I said it, for the first time ever, I heard my own voice. Like something else happened that I did not expect to happen. I heard the sound of my voice. Like, you know when you hear a song in another language that you don't understand, but you know it's about something heartbreaking? You just know it? And without even knowing the words or the melody or anything, you could literally cry just hearing it? It's so perfect. That's what my actual voice in that moment sounded like. And I really liked it so much. I never heard it before. And I just kind of took a step back. And I thought to myself, fuck, the testosterone is going to change that. It's going to change my voice. I don't want it to change my voice. I like my voice. It's perfect. My voice is fucking perfect. And then I thought about all the other things it's going to change. And I freaked out. And one of the things I found online, because I went back to Google and did the research after I took the testosterone, which is probably what you shouldn't do. You should probably research it before. Just letting you guys know, if you're ever considering transitioning, do the research first. So I got on Google and I'm like, what else is going to fucking happen on this testosterone? And it's one of the things it said is that my clit might get bigger and it might get bigger really fast. And at first I was like, what? (laughs) I'm sorry, what is going to happen? But then I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. It's like a tiny hard dick all the time. Cool. That could be fun. That could be fun. But then I thought about it some more, and I got rid of the jokes out of my head because I can't be serious, and I realized I really like my clit. My clit's dope. My clit is like, comes like that. Are you kidding? It's amazing. I can come over and over and over. I don't really have penis envy. I don't feel that. I don't want to have that. No, no. And it really got me thinking. And all of a sudden, I was just flooded with panic. I did not want this testosterone inside of me anymore. I had to get it out right that moment. I was freaking out. So I just ran to my bathroom and did the only thing I could think to do, which was grab my razor and just start shaving, hacking away at all the hair that I had grown out to try to be a man. I mean, I'm talking just getting it off. My legs, my bush, my armpits, everywhere that there was hair, I had to get it off. It's the only thing I could do. And then I just stood there in front of the mirror And I cried for a bit because I was still a woman. It hadn't gone all the way in yet. And I just cried and I thought to myself, "I I have to make a decision. I can't do this for the rest of my life. Like, 
uh, first of all, I'm too old. This is not something that you can do. You can't do this in your 30s. Like, you got to fucking shit or get off the pot at this point. Like, are you a man or you a woman or what are you? Figure it out. So, which is not actually true, but that's what I was feeling in the moment. So I made a decision right then, and I just decided, you know what? I'm not going to do this transitioning thing anymore, but I'm not going to commit to being a woman either. I'm going to give myself the fucking time that I deserve to have as a child that we all deserve to have as a child to just fucking explore and think and be creative and try things on and just fucking be in my own skin and see what I actually love. Because if I loved the sound of my own voice that I'd never heard or listened to, maybe there were other things about myself that I could love just as much. So I just decided to give myself time. And I'm still in the middle of that time. And I may be for the rest of my life. When people ask me, you know, very nicely, what are your preferred gender pronouns? I always say, I don't know. I just say it. I don't, I have no idea. Maybe people are born that way. Maybe people aren't. I don't know. Maybe I was so conditioned growing up by my mother that I'll never figure out who the fuck I am in terms of gender. Maybe it doesn't matter because it's all a construct anyway and who gives a fuck, right? But the best part about it, this for me, is that after realizing that and all this time that was a few years ago of just kind of being and getting more comfortable in my skin and not caring and being whatever I want one day to the next or moment to next, like call me whatever you want, say whatever comes naturally to you and if I don't like it, I'll tell you. Because sometimes when this person calls me a sir, I don't like it because of their tone. But then when this person calls me a sir, I like it because they see parts of me for who I am and they respect it. So I don't know, I don't know which one because it varies, because gender is so much about perception, your perception of me, not my perception of me. Sorry, I'm talking so much to you and addressing you in the front row. (laughs) You have carried this burden well for the rest of them. You have carried it well. Okay, but then I've been wondering, like, did I just spin my wheels for nothing? Did I just, like, go on this huge gender journey only to end up right back where I started? Like, how fucking boring and useless was all that time, right? But then a couple of years ago, I met my fiancé. I'm engaged. And, yeah. She's hot and smart, whatever. She's both. Come on. Sorry I said hot first, but she is really hot. That one's, like, blatantly obvious, you know? But she came with a child. And her child at the time was a four-year-old, freckle-faced, funny as all hell, sweet, kind little boy. And this little boy and I met and we hit it off from the jump. I'm talking like stupid laughter, like mommy doesn't get it kind of thing. Like mommy is the third wheel. And about six months into that relationship, he came to us and he said, four years old, I'm in the wrong body. And we said, what? You can spiral a football. You can shoot a basketball. You can do all these things. I found myself saying that to a four-year-old. What? What are you talking about? You like superheroes and the Hulk and Captain Marvel and all these things, all these boyish things. And he said, nope, I'm in the wrong body. I'm a girl inside of a boy body. And my name is Sophie. And we just kind of took a step back and said, okay, all right, you know, we can do this. We can, we can create a safe space for you. You're probably just being creative and curious. 
Well, it's been about two years, and this child is a full-blown girl. Unicorns, mermaids, pink, glitter. My name is Sophie. I only want female pronouns, and I only want you to use my preferred name that's female, and I'm going to be that everywhere. And she's that at school, and she's that at basketball, and she's that at aftercare, and she's that at her dad's and her mom's and everywhere in between. And it has challenged me so much, and it just made me realize, holy shit, all of those experiences I had were here for me to serve a purpose of being the best parent I could for this child. This child gets to have an out-of-the-box parent, and I get to be the parent that I needed and that she needs for this out-of-the-box child. And I, that was, for me, the moment that I realized it was all worth it, you know, that every minute of my gender struggle, then and now, because I'm still going through it, I go through it with her, and I'm honest about it. It was all so that I could be there for this little child who's gonna grow up in the world we have today. How fucking amazing is that? Thank you guys so much for listening to me. My name's Mavio. This is Risk. This is Fat Soul behind me now. And we just heard from Mav Viola, who you can find on Twitter at Mav Viola. Before that, we heard a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And now I want to talk to you about how you don't have time to be going to the post office. You're too busy, but Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Post Office right to your computer. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Stamps.com saves you time and money. It's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use it. With Stamps.com, you get 5 cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off 
priority mail. We've been using Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio for years now, and we've always loved it. And right now, Risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale. Without any long-term commitment, just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com, enter Risk. Our final story this week comes to us from the wonderful Sharon Spell. Sharon pitched us um, another one or two stories before, and I remember feeling like, ah, I think there's another story in you. And then she pitched us this one, and I was like, yep. That's the one. <laughs> you can find Sharon on Twitter at Sharon Spell. Here she is at the Risk Live show at Caveat in New York City with a story we call Wake Up. So I come to in this uh, bright room, and there's a, a neon light above me, and it's, it resembles a spaceship. I don't remember being on a spaceship ever, but that's where my mind goes. And then I realize it's not a spaceship. It's a medical facility of some sort, because it smells like a medical facility, you know, like rubbing alcohol and beer. And I think, oh, I, I don't. I don't know how I got here. Was I having blood work done? And I start to sit up, and I can't because my head is pounding, and my body hurts. My right arm is actually on fire, and I lift my head enough to look down, and my forearm is scratched and bruised, and there's a deep cut close to the veins in my wrist, and I can't move my thumb easily. And I guess I'm making noise because I hear a woman's voice say, oh, it sounds like she's come too. And I think, yeah, that's me. I'm the she in that story. I, I have come too. And she pulls the curtain open and she sees me with my eyes open and lets me know that I'm in the emergency room at Beth Israel Hospital. I don't remember going to the hospital. This is weird. She continues, they brought you in from Avenue C. I hadn't been at Avenue C. I had been at a bar the night before on 14th between A and B. It's close to C, but not C. She added, all your stuff is still here. Your wallet wasn't stolen, and you weren't raped. You're lucky. And you know, her tone was really harsh. For me, a confused woman who just woke up in an emergency room and didn't know where she was and it was a little off-putting. Her attitude was a little off-putting. And I tried to sit up more to try to address the situation. And my backside, I realize, is bruised. So I realized maybe I should keep my mouth shut and just listen. But she apparently was done giving me information when she said that I was free to go. So I sat there for a moment and collected my thoughts and thought, if, if I could even stand up. So when I do stand up, I get my things, like nobody makes eye contact with me as I make my exit from the emergency room. 
and I realize like I'm hungover and I don't know how I got here and I feel embarrassed because I've I've never done anything this publicly humiliating. I've blacked out from drinking before. A friend of mine liked to call them rolling brownouts. You know, like, <laughs> you'd remember a lot of the evening, but bits and pieces just were gone in the ether, you know. But to just not know how I got that injured or ended up there. So I hail a cab in the blazingly bright sunlight. What an adjustment to go from drinking in a bar to emergency room to, oh, it's daytime. The cab ride home, I'm trying to put the evening together the best I can, and I can't text anyone because my Motorola flip phone, God bless it, uh, <laughs> had actually died, not run out of juice, it had died. So I'm alone with my thoughts and the cab driver going home to Queens, trying to think, how am I going to spend this one? <laughs> and as soon as I get home, I pass out again. And then later in the evening, when I come to again... <laughs> I open my laptop, and I have, I have an email from a friend who had been at the show the night before. Now, see, I ran a weekly show at this bar where I've been drinking, a comedy show, and people came to the show regularly, and we'd hang out and have drinks and have good times and then go on our merry way. And I do remember drinking with this one guy, and there was an email from him, and I thought, ah, oh, good, some clues. The email read... Just a synopsis was, Sharon, the kiss we shared last night was platonic and friendly, and it didn't mean anything, so don't you worry about any of it, because we don't have to talk about it. And that's the first time I laughed since uh, (laughs) any of this started, because it was hilarious that he was sending me this email at all for a kiss I didn't remember. But what I gleaned from his message was, oh, yeah, you have a girlfriend. You don't want me to tell her about this kiss, and you're trying to spin and get ahead of the story. I know how this works. Uh, But I just wrote him back and said, hey, thanks for checking in. I don't remember the kiss. All I remember is waking up at Beth Israel this morning. (laughs) Take care, Sharon. You know. uh, (laughs) (laughs) And he wrote back and said, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I kept buying us tequila shots and you seemed okay, and then I put you in a cab, I should have gone with you. And that last part, like, yeah, you were going to Queens, nut. Uh, (laughs) But he put me in a cab, aha, another clue. I was in a cab at some point. And I drank heavily for a while. I drank socially and partied in my 20s, and then I got married and realized soon after the wedding that it was a mistake. My parents were married for 53 years. My siblings, my brothers, and my sister were all married still to their first spouses, and it was emphasized in my family and my upbringing. You get married once, and that's it. So I thought I did a good job picking this life partner and dating, but I'd never really seen him get angry until after the wedding. And after I started to see his anger problems, realized, like, all right, I got to get through this. And the way I coped with that was heavy drinking at home and was pretty good at drinking out in public and then going home in private to continue (laughs) drinking. Eventually, I got the courage to end the marriage and break up with him. 
And not long after we broke up, he started dating a friend of mine who had been at our wedding. I found that out through Facebook. That's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. (laughs) The night of this heavy drinking incident was the night before his birthday. And I was killing myself thinking about how they were together and how I had caught all of his hell for so many years. And she was reaping all the benefits. And I thought about how they must be laughing at me, or worse, not thinking about me at all. And I didn't want to think about that anymore. So when shots kept showing up at the table, oh yeah, we're drinking shots. And the thing is, I didn't want to die, but I couldn't live with this pain. And so I was passively hoping I wouldn't wake up every time I drank heavily, and it was a lot. And the thing is, I kept waking up. (laughs) So I didn't tell anybody about this. I didn't have to. I got a bill from the uh, ambulance and from the ER. Those are luxury items, too, by the way. I wasn't making any money at this time. And to the tune of $1,500, you know, I lived like a rich person and didn't even, like, get to enjoy it. You know, the emergency room, who am I, a Rockefeller? Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'll take a very expensive ambulance ride from Avenue C to Beth Israel. Thank you very much. I'm Sharon Spell Rockefeller. <laughs> But I put on my Discover card like I put so many other things on credit card at the time and move forward with my life. And I wish I could say that that was the last time I drank. But a lot of times you never just hit one bottom. I did stop drinking for about two months after this, but then it was my birthday. And you got to drink on your birthday, right? Sharon Spell, you got to drink on your birthday. But then the heavy drinking started again, and also picking at the wound of this emotional injury kept happening, and uh, not long after that, I looked at their Facebook photos. Oh, don't do that. Uh, I have since blocked them, so I won't do that again, but I looked at their smiling couple photos together, and I finished a whole bottle of vodka by myself (laughs) at home alone and and I came to the next day and had to cancel all my plans it was 4th of July by then and I had plans with people outdoors doing things and I stayed home and nursed a hangover and there's another time months after that where I was out with my improv group because we're all in an improv group aren't we uh, <laughs> And we end up at karaoke, and we're doing shots, and drinks are being passed around. I realize, like, oh, I have hit the wall. It's time to go home. And I get home, and I fall into a shelving unit in my bedroom and knock the whole thing over and wake up my landlady and break some things I didn't want to break. And I have a huge bruise on my upper arm this time. It was about four and a half more years from this emergency room night before I woke up one morning and realized how I was missing my life. Where I woke up just on a Wednesday morning after having like three drinks the night before. It was a light night. It was a very light night. 
But I woke up thinking like, ex-husband's not hurting you anymore. Nobody is in this apartment hurting you at all. Nobody's dipping into your bank account. Nobody is standing in the way of your own success but you, Sharon Spell. And that's when I decided to really give it a try. And it was hard. Oh, it was hard because (laughs) drinking is a currency. Comedians get paid in drink tickets. Hire us for your parties. But I got paid in seltzers for a while to see how that felt. And I was ready by then to deal with the abandonment and loss that I've been walking with for so long. And it hurt. It hurt a lot. I felt lots of feelings I had stuffed down for a long, long time. But I thought at that point, like, I'd already been in the emergency room. I'd already damaged things in my home. I'd already had to cancel plans with friends. Like, what big catastrophic thing am I waiting for to tell me to stop hurting myself? Because by this point, I didn't want to hurt myself anymore. I decided I do want to live. I want to try. I want to be available for life. And it was probably about three, four months into drinking, I woke up in my room, surrounded by the familiar smells of my sheets, and my t-shirts, and the dust bunnies around, and the curtains, and the sun was coming up. And I was just grateful to have the opportunity to feel what it felt like to wake up instead of just come to. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is XTC behind me now, and we just heard from Sharon Spell, who you can find on Twitter at Sharon Spell. Keep up with us at risk by joining the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook, or you can join in conversations happening at patreon.com slash risk. Always be spreading the word about the show to friends. Teach your friends how to download the show. Share stories from the show with your friends. Give friends the Risk book and let them know about our Amazon series, This Can't Be Happening, and My Boy, Their Son, these, you know, Amazon original stories that we've created. 
and pitch us your stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. Also, you can always find information about where Risk is appearing live next at risk-show.com slash tour. If you want to learn more about storytelling, whether it be for the stage or just in your personal life or even corporate situations, we teach storytelling at thestorystudio.org. So look us up there as well. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Whoa, <laughs> <laughs>